Welcome, friends. You are listening to the podcast for First Christian Church in Fort Myers, Florida. To learn more, join us online at fccfm.org. It is a blessing to be able to share God's Word with you today. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, church. Right now, we are in week number three of a sermon series called A Faith That Works from the New Testament book of James. And in week number one, we talked about the Christian faith as a faith that works in a hostile, struggling, difficult world. It works by giving us hope in hard times. In week number two, we said a faith that works is one that works for everyone, not just the insider, but the outsider, not just the mainstream, but even those who are marginalized. And this is week number three, and today we're going to discover a faith that works in the noise, a faith that works in a loud world when everybody else is yelling and screaming, insulting and demeaning, hateful and critiquing, the followers of Christ have a much better way. And the much better way is the taming of the tongue, which brings us to our big idea for today. A faith that works is one that has the freedom to speak, but the wisdom to remain silent. Now, let me say that again, because I believe that is incredibly important for us today. A faith that works is one that has the freedom to speak, but the wisdom to remain silent. Now, I don't know about all of you, but I don't always have the wisdom to remain silent. It was several years ago, well actually I'm happy to report it was several decades ago, that I walked up to a round table full of people at church. And if memory serves correct, there were three couples at this particular table and they were all talking about baby names. And they, they mentioned this particular baby name and, and I won't say what it is today because that might not be wise. But the name struck me as funny, and I said, well, who the heck would name their kid that? (laughs) I mean, seriously, who would do that? Who would do that to their child? Think of all the other kids who was going to harass that kid with that name. That's crazy talk. And, And I was just so appalled, not because it's that bad of a name, but because I'm so opinionated. But I went on and on without realizing nobody at the table was saying a word. In fact, when I looked up, their eyes were about this big. And then I looked at this one sweet couple at the table, proud new dad, sitting next to his wife, holding their brand new baby in her arms. And I said, you did, didn't you? That's what you named your baby, isn't it? I am so sorry. It's actually a fine name, looks cute on her. What was I supposed to say after that disaster? I was so embarrassed. How do you take that one back? I was like, oh, me and my big mouth. Well, I guess I've always erred on the side of saying too much rather than saying too little. But if you read what James writes in James chapter three, you'll see it is indeed an error to say too much rather than too little. And I just have to wonder this morning, am I alone in the room? Anybody with me? Anybody ever been in a situation like that? Well, probably not one that foolish. 
Have you ever wished you could have some of your words back? Man, maybe you said something to the woman in your life about how she looked. Maybe you even thought it was complimentary or you intended it to be complimentary, but you said it wrong, it came out wrong, and it hurt her feelings. Ever been there? Mothers of teenagers? You ever been so frustrated with your sons or daughters that you said something you regretted? Maybe you said they were stupid or foolish when what you meant to say was they did something stupid or did something foolish. Perhaps you passed along a story, a bit of gossip about a coworker that got back to them and hurt your working relationship and you regretted ever saying anything in the first place. I mean, it wasn't really your story to tell. Maybe you shot off an email to your boss on a really bad day. Maybe you made a sarcastic comment to someone in your Bible study. Maybe you've posted way too much political commentary on social media and have hurt some important relationships. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody with me? Well, I know some of you are, because even in the past few weeks, I've had a handful of you remind me of the sermon series we did last fall called Zip It, (laughs) and share with me the word zip it being in your mind in a moment that you had been saying too much. You know, it's not wise to say too much. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19 says, When words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. Now, we've learned the past few weeks, actually the past couple of months, that wisdom is what works in this world. Wisdom and foolishness isn't always a matter of good and evil. It's a matter of what normally works and what normally doesn't work. And in our February sermon series called Foolproof, we discovered the wisdom of Solomon from the Proverbs in the Old Testament. And as we're making our way through the book of James, we are still talking about wisdom. In fact, the book of James has often been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. And for those of you who are new to this whole church scene, the Old Testament contains the Jewish scriptures and the New Testament contains the Christian scriptures and together they make up the 66 books in our Bibles. But the book of James has often been called the Proverbs of the New Testament because its teachings are simple and practical and so very helpful without being overly theological I mean, it's fairly easy to read and understand the book of James. Fairly easy to understand, not so easy to apply. And it's easy to understand we have the freedom to speak, yes? It's even easy to understand that it's wise to remain silent. We get that. But wow, can it be hard to remain silent? You know, I imagine the original readers of the book of James were having a hard time remaining silent silent. We've learned the past few weeks that the original readers were enduring an incredibly difficult time. They were being attacked in their homeland. They were beaten. Some of them had been unjustly killed by political leaders. They had been driven from their homes in Jerusalem. They'd become refugees in surrounding lands. You know, this past month, we've been watching Ukrainians being attacked in their homelands, being killed by unjust political leaders. 
They've been driven from their homes. They have become refugees in surrounding lands. And when I watch the news, I see the hell they are living through and I hurt for them and I pray for them. I pray for their peace. I pray for their justice. And I, I try to imagine what it would be like to live through such times and it's really hard to grasp here in sunny Southwest Florida. But the original audience James wrote to Oh, they got it. They could imagine. In fact, Ukrainians would have a lot more in common with the early Christians than we ever could. They know suffering like many of us have never seen. And these early Christians were trying to work out their newfound faith as persecuted refugees living in a new land. And James writes to instruct them on how to live wisely in their new context. And he spends a lot of time telling them to be wise in what they say. And, and just because they might have the right to say something, that doesn't mean it's wise. That their words, if they're not careful, can make things harder, not better. He mentions that in James chapter 1, verse 19. He mentions that in James chapter 4, verse 11. And he commits almost all of James chapter 3 to the subject. And speaking of James chapter 3, if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, go ahead and open those up and get those out. James chapter 3 begins like this. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. After telling us how to persevere under trial in James chapter one, and then telling us how to welcome outsiders without judgment in James chapter two, James chapter three begins with a warning. He says, not many of you should become teachers. Now, in the modern church, we talk a lot about leadership. We talk about who is in leadership, who should be in leadership, what does good leadership look like, but the actual word leadership is not found in the New Testament. Now, there are a couple of translations that'll translate Acts chapter 1, verse 20 with the word leader, but that's not really a great translation. No, in, in the New Testament, leadership is more about serving and ministering and pastoring and teaching than it is about being in charge. Nevertheless, the Jerusalem church had leaders who directed the affairs of the church and taught the ways of Christ. And you've heard of, most likely, those leaders. They were called the apostles. Peter, Andrew, James and John, and then, of course, James, the half-brother of Jesus as well, the author of the letter that we're studying this month. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1 says, while most of the Christians were scattered from Jerusalem, the apostles stayed behind to pick up the pieces with those who remained. And, and this was a hard thing, but this was actually a good thing because it decentralized leadership. All of a sudden, these new Christians would be forced to step into leadership roles in their new context. They could no longer defer to the apostles to lead them and teach them. They would have to grow into these roles themselves. And perhaps there weren't many who were leading, or perhaps there were many who were longing to lead, even competing to lead. And what does James say? James says, not so fast. Be careful what you wish for. It's not going to be easy. 
you better count the cost. And specifically, those who teach are mentioned. Is this because so much of our teaching involves using our voices to instruct? Of course, you teach by example, but you also teach with words. I think the same goes for any form of leadership. There's an older translation of James chapter three, verse one, which says, not many of you should presume to be teachers, which would indicate people really wanted this role. They assumed they would be good at this role when maybe it wasn't really their role. And so James seems to be saying, be careful what you wish for. And then he reveals the why. He says, you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, what we normally do with this verse is we assume it's talking about God's judgment. For those of you who teach, those of you who lead, God's going to judge you more strictly than he's going to judge others. And that could be what James has in mind here. Remember, this book is more wisdom than theology, and wisdom is about what works best. It's more about practical realities than theological truths, although theological truths are certainly present as well. But perhaps, maybe, I think, James has in mind the practical reality that those in leadership and teaching roles are going to be judged in general, judged more often than those who are not. Judged by people. Judged by the audience. How about judged by actual judges? Since Christians are being persecuted here by legal entities looking for evidence to prosecute them, could their own words be used as evidence against them? Is James saying, be careful what you say because God is going to judge you? Or is James saying, don't give the enemy any ammunition to further attack you? Or maybe James has both applications in mind. I'll be honest with you. Sometimes the world around us can be hostile toward us. We all know that. And certainly there are Christians in other cultures who are being persecuted heavily for their faith. But sometimes I wonder if what some of what we face as American Christians, we're just giving the enemy their ammunition. Even as Christ followers, let's be really reflective here and really introspective that even as Christ followers, let's be honest, admit and admit that we have said things in ways and with tones that are actually counterintuitive to the ways of Jesus. On t-shirts, on bumper stickers, especially on social media. Let's continue. Verse two. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or, or take ships as an example, although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. 
Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now, I just wanna mention at this point that James uses a lot of hyperbole and a number of metaphors as well. Hyperbole is an overstatement to make a strong point. For instance, James says, if you can tame your tongue, your whole body will be perfect. That's hyperbole. Overstatement to make a strong point. James says the tongue is a fire, a world of evil. That's hyperbole, overstatement to make a strong point. James says no human being can tame the tongue. That's hyperbole, overstatement to make a strong point. And he uses all these metaphors such as bits in horses' mouths and rudders on boats and sparks that start fires, all metaphors to make a strong point. And that point being your biggest battle and you will have many battles in life. We're human, we have battles. We have enemies, we have adversaries, we have opponents, but your biggest battle might be the battle you have with yourself. With your mouth, with your tongue, with your tone, with your words, with what you say, you might be your greatest enemy. And it's almost like James finds 10 different literary devices to make this one point, and then he makes it over and over and over and over again. And if you wonder why he keeps making the same point over and over again, maybe it's like the church that hired a new preacher. And he got up on his first Sunday, and he preached a killer sermon, and it was amazing. Everyone was so impressed about this great new preacher they had, and after that first service, that first sermon, the church was abuzz with excitement, and they couldn't wait for the next Sunday. They even started calling all of their friends and inviting them to church, and the next Sunday rolls around with great anticipation by the church members along with all of their guests, and they file into the church building, they fill up the pews, and they sing their songs, and they get ready for another killer sermon, but then something rather strange happened. The new preacher got up and preached the exact same message he preached the Sunday before. Same scripture, same main ideas, same points, same takeaways, even the same stories and illustrations, word for word, exact same sermon. And the people, they were so confused, and it was honestly rather uncomfortable, and no one knew what to think or do, and they were so confused, no one said anything, they just left that Sunday considerably less excited than the previous Sunday. But they still returned for week number three. And week number three, the new preacher got up and he gave the exact same message he'd preached the Sunday before, same scripture, same main idea, same point, same takeaways, same story, same illustrations. And this time the people were, were visibly angry and they started calling for a board meeting. They wanted to talk to the church elders, wanted to find out what in the world was going on. And so you can imagine 
how frustrated the people were when week number four came and went with the exact same sermon. And finally, a congregational meeting was called and the preacher was brought before the church to explain why he was preaching the same sermon over and over again. And he said, well, once we start applying this one, then we'll move on to the next one. And I kind of feel like that's what James is doing here. He's saying the same thing over and over again and saying it in so many different ways because he fears his audience isn't getting the point that what you say matters and how you say it matters. And you don't need to say everything you think and you don't need to engage in every conversation happening. And let's be honest, you don't need to have an opinion on everything. Just because you have the freedom to speak your mind doesn't always mean you should speak your mind. All right, let's conclude this little section of James chapter three, verses nine and 10. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Now, the word here for cursing simply means speaking against someone. It doesn't mean using four-letter words. In fact, there is no prohibition in the Bible against using four-letter words, although I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> Rather, what James is telling us here to do is to be very careful, very cautious, very guarded with our words, and especially our words of critique and condemnation. I mean, that's the what. That's what he's telling us to do. But again, James also shares the why. And the why is because we want our whole lives, including our words, to bring honor and glory to God. That's why what we say and how we say it matters. That's why holding our tongue and watching our tone matters because we exist to bring honor and glory to God. That's why we have been put here. And our words are a big part of that. And so, of course, we want to honor God with our relationships. And of course, we want to honor God with our families. And of course, we want to honor God with our bodies. And we want to honor God with our actions. And hopefully, we want to honor God with our careers and with our hobbies. But we also want to honor God with our words. In a mouth that is constantly cursing, criticizing, and condemning, grumbling, griping, and judging is gonna have an awful hard time praising God and leading people to Jesus. As Christ followers, we should be guarded with our words of critique and generous with our words of praise. The Duke of Wellington was the British military leader who defeated Napoleon, the Battle of Waterloo. 
It's been said he was not an easy man to serve under, that he was a hard man, he was brilliant, he was demanding, not one to shower his subordinates with praise. He could be more critical than complimentary. And yet, even Wellington realized that his methods left something to be desired. In his old age, a young lady asked him what, if anything, he would do differently if he had his life to live all over again. Wellington thought for a moment, reflectively replied, if I had it over to do again, I'd give more praise. And that brings us to our takeaway for today. Be more generous with your praise. Be more generous with your praise. Have the wisdom to hold back when you want to critique and be generous with your praise. Use your words to praise God and to praise people. If you see somebody doing something good, tell them. Be more generous with your praise. If you wanna honor God with your words, giving your enemies no more ammunition to use against you, then be generous with your praise. A faith that works. A faith that works to bring glory to God is one that is generous with its praise. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we look at this world, it is so evident that what is happening is not working. The way people are living is not working. The way people are acting is not working. The way people are speaking with the tone and the rhetoric of division and divisiveness, God, it's so clear that it's not working. But you in your goodness have shown us a faith that works. And that is a faith that works in hard times to give us hope. A faith that works for everyone, inviting the outsiders to be insiders, all of them. And a faith that works to speak life and praise and light into a dark world. God, we thank you that while we live in a world that at least at this moment seems that nothing is working, you have given us a faith that works. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray this message has been a blessing to you. If we can pray for you or encourage you in any capacity, please let us know at fccfm.org.